Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, on Friday, March 27th, 2020, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the U.S. In this limited series, I am reaching out to interview future-facing courageous healthcare leaders and entrepreneurs asking two questions. One, how is the COVID-19 pandemic immediately changing the way we're delivering healthcare? And two, how will COVID-19 reframe American healthcare for years to come? Our guest this week is Dr. Robert Pearl. Robbie was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group and the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group of Kaiser Permanente, where he was responsible for over 5 million patients' lives. He and his colleagues really set the bar for what value-based healthcare could and should look like in the outcomes that they achieve. Since leaving his position in 2017, Dr. Pearl has written a book entitled Mistreated, why we think we're getting good healthcare and why we're usually wrong. He currently teaches healthcare strategy and policy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and was named one of modern healthcare's 50 most influential physician leaders. I've had the amazingly great fortune of speaking with and interviewing Dr. Pearl a number of times in the past. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the interview, I would refer you to episode number 46 of Creating a New Healthcare. Now, in this interview, we're going to get some incredible and scientifically-based insights regarding the realities of the COVID-19 pandemic and Dr. Pearl's recommendations for what we need to be doing in the face of those realities and the implications over the next couple of years. So without further ado, let's drop into the interview I recorded a few days ago with Dr. Robert Pearl. So, Robbie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and with us today. Could you just share with the uh, listeners just a little bit about your background? First, it's a privilege to be on the show today. In terms of my background, I went to medical school at Yale. Then I went to Stanford where I did my residency in plastic reconstructive surgery, focusing on children with cleft lip and cleft palate. And since finishing my residency, I've actually had three careers I spent time as a clinician, a physician, and a surgeon. I also was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, responsible for the healthcare of over 5 million Kaiser Permanente patients, both on the West Coast and the East Coast. And I'm now having the opportunity to lead nationally, providing expertise and information about healthcare, healthcare redesign, while teaching at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Stanford Medical School. Impressive background and uh, just a unique experience. When you were, for many, many years, in that leadership role at Kaiser Permanente, how many physicians uh, were you leading? I was leading over 10,000 physicians, 46,000 staff. As I said, we had the responsibility of taking care of over 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on both coasts with a budget of $25 billion. Big job. So I want to use your experience and expertise to ask lessons about how this pandemic has already changed healthcare. What lessons can we learn? What you believe Kaiser Permanente has to teach us about the future of healthcare and opportunities we have for reframing healthcare. And I want to get to that in a moment, but you recently wrote an article, which uh, I don't want to pass over because it's just so impactful uh, and an online article. And I was wondering, I mean, you mentioned to me that the readership is about 3 million people that have read this article. And at one point it made up 20% of all the readership on Forbes online, I believe. And you just published this. I remember reading it the last week or so, so it's really recent. Could you just share what that article is and three main points? The article on Forbes is called Three Coronavirus Facts Americans Must Know Before Returning to Work and School. And as you say, it's already had over 2.9 million readers. To me, that tells me that Americans are seeking information about the coronavirus, and they have more questions 
for which they don't have adequate answers now than direction for the future. The first thing the article points out is that staying home saves lives, but it doesn't kill the coronavirus. Many people have written in a way that would imply that by social distancing, we somehow will be able to contain this virus. It can't happen. As you know, Zeev, today there was a paper coming out of Taiwan that this virus is not only transmissible before people have symptoms, but we also know that a lot of people never become symptomatic and it's most contagious at the early stages. The idea of eliminating this virus won't happen, which leads to the second point. We're in this for the long haul. People want to believe that a medication will come along or some other treatment. This virus will remain with us until there is a vaccine or potentially until there is what's called herd immunity. Enough people in the population have had the virus that it has difficulty being transmitted because there's not a susceptible host to infect. And finally, fact three, I titled, Our Nation is Ignoring the Most Important Metric. And this metric is what's called the r naught, the number of people for whom one infected individual gives the virus. Each virus has a unique r naught. Measles is a very high one, 12 to 18 people infected for every individual who has it. The common flu is a little over one. The best estimates are that the coronavirus is somewhere around three. One person gives it to three, which explains why you see this massive exponential growth under normal circumstances. By the way, as we saw down in Mardi Gras in Louisiana or mm -hmm. at various medical meetings, if you put a lot of people in a tight environment, you're gonna see rapid spread. But as you separate people, social distancing, you're able to bring it down. And what our nation, I believe, needs is a strategic lens. You know, you read in the papers about the need for more testing, but no one tells you how will that testing be used? That's the important question. You can use testing to identify everyone, quarantine them, totally isolate them. That's what some nations have done. I don't see that happening in the United States. So I believe that the current number of cases, which by the way, includes the number of deaths because the deaths come out of the number of people who have the virus, will stay relatively constant across time. And our goal, our strategy mm -hmm. has to be, how do we return to business? How do we return to school? How do we return to a more normal life. I don't want to call it a normal life because it still will have social distancing. It still will require masks while not allowing that r not to go too high. That's now a strategy. Now we can talk about how do you do testing, particularly oral swabs, which is very exciting to me coming out of Rutgers and Yale because now we could have people with a test that's not as painful as the nasal swab do so on a periodic basis. Why is that going to become so important? Because if this disease can be transmitted before symptoms, waiting till people have symptoms and then doing a nasal swab doesn't make sense. How do we find people before they even know they're sick and then get them to self-quarantine? And let me add one last piece, and I'm sure we're going to come to it during the conversation today. Mm -hmm. We need to segment the population. This is a principle in business. Not every American is the same. Some people have very low chance of having a serious disease and risking death. Other people, people over 80 with multiple chronic disease has a one in six chance. And yet we talk about it as though the population is homogeneous. We need a strategic lens, not just simply a one-size-fits-all American approach to COVID-19. Yeah, super helpful, Robbie. And, you know, I remember reading the article just a week or so ago, 
a significant percentage of people actually don't mount a significant fever and that you can be symptomatic or you can be sharing and shedding the virus even before you are symptomatic. So if you wait until uh, you have a fever or until you have overt symptoms, I mean, that's too late. And so I think that it emphasizes this need, as you're pointing out, for, for some easier, more convenient way of testing uh, because temperature alone and symptoms alone will not do it. Absolutely. And in fact, most people believe that you don't see the temperature, you don't see the cough until you've actually had the virus for five days. And as this paper coming out of Taiwan showed today, you're actually far more contagious early on than right. you're going to be once those symptoms occur. That's opposite to what happened with SARS and MERS and why this coronavirus is behaving very different than the other ones and why we're still learning a lot of information about it. But I want to stress for listeners, so much of it is predictable. I mean, people act as though it's unexpected. Mm -hmm. you know, yesterday, the president talked about the fact that 100 to 200,000 people would die as though this was new news. We knew it two months ago. When you have a virus that's very transmissible with an R naught of three, and it has a mortality that's somewhere between two and five times more than the flu, and 50,000 people die every year from the flu, you can expect that you're going to see somewhere between 100,000 and 250,000 deaths. This is actually a relatively predictable virus. We still don't know whether it's going to get much better in the warm weather, but we do know it's not mutating. It's not changing very fast. I think the issue is really more about people and society and how we're going to respond to it. And as I say, creating a clear strategy than it is some sense that this virus is a mystery. It has factors we still have to figure out, but we know the majority of things about its transmissibility and its mm -hmm. lethality. So one of the implications is that this situation in one form or another is going to continue longer than we might or the general public might anticipate. It's, you know, I think we were under the impression that just like other flu seasons or viral seasons that it would peak and then go away. And it seems to me in part, maybe because of the social distancing, we've reduced the peaks and so avoided the calamity of uh, a tremendous surge that would overwhelm our healthcare systems, although that has happened in certain areas like New York City. But it seems that is, in some sense, reduced the uh, herd immunity, if you will, or decreased that from happening. And in some sense, we now have this prolonged period. I don't even know what to call it. I, I'm calling it recovery. I don't, I don't, so I'm curious about the time frame that you see uh, this lasting, I don't know, months or, or years. What is that? The reason flu tends to die out is two factors. Number one, heat, warm weather tends to minimize it for reasons that we don't actually fully understand. And the second thing about it is it has this transmissibility as R0 of only a little bit over one. So it's not a very communicable disease. This is where the coronavirus is different. Mm -hmm. You know, I started a podcast called Coronavirus The Truth literally two months ago to the day. Mm -hmm. On that day, there were only 70 deaths in the United States. Today, as you know, there's over 60,000. What does that tell us? It tells us this virus has an exponential factor. We can diminish the numbers, but as soon as that social distancing eases, it's gonna come back very, very quickly. It's only gonna end with a vaccine or with enough herd immunity. Mm -hmm neither of which is likely to happen for over a year. So we're looking at at least 12, 18, maybe even 24 months until we have an effective approach to eliminate the virus. That's the time frame that sits in play. I don't know if you play chess, but in chess, there's sort of three parts to the game. There's the opening set of moves. They're very scripted. They all have names attached to them, usually famous players, who have invented them. And there's the end game that's a pretty clear mathematical solution. But the middle game is really the most interesting part. And that's where we are now. 
And this middle game, as in chess, is going to last for a long time. And what we have to be able to do in this time frame is have a strategy. What are we trying to accomplish, Steve? We're not trying to eliminate this virus, contrary to what people are trying to say. It can't be done, particularly as you pointed out, in a virus that is transmissible before people have symptoms. It's not going to happen, at least anywhere in the near future that I can see. So how do we manage this virus by keeping this R naught right around one every time we want to expand businesses so we don't have a long-term depression, which is a financial possibility, we have to take an equivalent action to diminish transmissibility. A good example is masks. What we know is that masks are not very protective for people getting the virus, but they're very good at stopping people who have it from giving it to others. Doesn't completely eliminate it. It's not an R naught of zero, it's an R naught of one, and if we go from two-thirds of people to everyone wearing a mask, we have room to expand. As an example as well, Germany, a nation that is about a quarter of our size, has a tenth of the problem that we have now. It actually has far fewer cases now than it had back in April. It has its schools open, but there's yellow tape down the stairwells so that people going up and going down don't come in contact with each other. It has multiple sessions a day, so class size is much smaller, recesses staggered, six-foot distances maintained. How do we think about those things that we can do to minimize the spread while at the same time being able to ease up in social distancing in the ways that will have the most positive impact, both economically, interpersonally, individually. That's the opportunity I think that we have to have. And right now in our nation, from my perspective, Zeev, it's a one-size-fits-all. And I want to keep adding, we need to figure out how better than today to protect those who are most vulnerable. I believe we should be delivering food to their house. I think mm -hmm. we should be going to the store for them. We should be doing everything we can to support them because they are looking at at least 12 months of self-quarantine in order to maximize or minimize the risk of their dying, maximize the health, minimize their risk of dying. I really love your metaphor of the chess game. You know, the opening was this tremendous heroic uh, effort on the part of uh, so many providers and systems and the support of that effort. And that's still ongoing. And, and I think we're seeing that across the country. But we're entering into the middle game, as you say, and the end game, as you point out, I think is very clearly we are going to need a vaccine and or herd immunity. And so it is a bit more formulaic. And I agree with you. I mean, you know, in talking to virology experts and reading some of this uh, literature over the past few weeks, it seems that typically the production of a vaccine can take five to 15 years. And it's really the exception where it's, you know, on the shorter end of that. And yet we are trying to create something within a year or two, which I find remarkable. I know that there are some approaches, uh, for instance, like this, uh, I forget exactly what it's called, but this sort of human challenge where literally taking people who have a lower risk of dying, like younger people, and subjecting them, you know, vaccinating them with the experimental vaccine and then subjecting them to the virus. Now, from an ethical perspective, I, I think there are questions being raised about that because, you know, the risk is never zero, no matter how young and how healthy one is. But th that's a radically different approach to testing vaccines. Uh, also, the idea of actually putting them into production before they've been tested is another acceleration. So there's this very, very different approach, and maybe we can produce it quicker. I'm curious, before I, we dive into the middle game, what do you think about that, the sort of the accelerated vaccine testing, production and development and production and testing? You're absolutely right, Steve. We've never yet produced a vaccine in fewer than five years. Uh, as you know, we've looked for over a decade, two decades to find an AIDS vaccine. We still don't have one. The vaccines that are being talked about right now or what's called RNA vaccines. They aim to actually address the uh, genetic material inside the virus. That has never been shown to 
or at least so far, we've been unable to ever find a vaccine to do that. There are major risks because RNA sits inside of our own bodies. Most of the vaccines are aimed at proteins and structures inside the virus that we don't share with them. Uh, this is very complex, even finding ones that are safe and effective, and then we have to test it. I, you know, I, I can't imagine we would intentionally infect anyone. Ethically, I can't in any way support that. Having said that, you can take two schools that are uh, located uh, in the same community and you can provide the vaccine to one set of students and not to the other, or you can vaccinate half of the students. I mean, if you think back to the mid uh, 20th century polio, that's essentially how we tested that vaccine. We took a disease that was very problematic that in the summertime, a lot of children would get, and we did a research study basically adding protection, not creating added risk. And I, I think we could do that right now. I don't think the testing will be the biggest issue. I think the biggest issue will be the developing of it and then improving both its efficacy and its safety, which is exactly what the FDA was designed to accomplish. So we are looking at a prolonged, as you said, you know, 18 to 24 months. So we could be well into 2022 with the situation uh, until we either amass a herd immunity or and go through that or and or uh, the vaccine. So let's talk about the middle game. And you talked about this uh, notion of a strategy based on science. And, you know, you mentioned this idea of of using segmentation. It's, and it's, Robbie, it's so interesting you said that. I just this weekend, I received an email from a colleague and who had read uh, my book on reframing healthcare. And he said, you know, I'm using your notion of segmentation, or we are beginning to use that notion of segmentation in our hospital system, because there's something about that, even the notion that certain clinics, uh, certain parts of the hospital will be used for patients who potentially either have had uh, COVID or have COVID. Other parts will be kept separate and trying to figure out the best way to test people and make sure that certain areas are safer than others. So that was one example that he had pointed out to me. But I'm curious as to if you could expound on your notion of segmentation, what that might look like. And also, you know, who you mentioned before, keeping people at home who are more susceptible. So when you said that, I'm thinking the elderly, those with chronic diseases who don't necessarily have to be elderly, because we've seen that as well, that younger people with, uh, with diabetes and hypertension and obesity with predisposing lung conditions are also at increased risk for morbidity and hospitalization and ventilation and death from the virus. So I'm curious as to who would you segment out and protect at home? Um, and how would you introduce some of the segmentation into our society? And again, I do think there's probably some of that is also fraught, right, to this notion of segmentation. So I'm really, really curious as to if you have thoughts about that. I definitely would encourage listeners to think about the two aspects of the virus somewhat separately. There's transmissibility and lethality. So transmissibility is how do we maintain a manageable number of people who are going to be infected at any, any given time? Because if we try to get it down to zero, the rest of our lives, the businesses, the schools, the interpersonal would disappear. That's not going to be acceptable. And yet if it goes up too high, we're going to see the exponential growth of our hospitals and see people die unnecessarily because they can't get the care, not because of the virus, because they can't get the care they need. So transmissibility is how do we keep it around this or not? Then the question is going to be, how do we segment the population relative to lethality, relative to risk? And that's where I think we need to look at, as you've said, 94% of people who need hospitalization for the coronavirus have chronic disease. So if you don't have a chronic disease, your chances are very small of needing hospitalization. You still can get sick because of the transmissibility factor, but you're not going to need hospitalization. And hospitalization leads to critical care, leads to ventilators, leads to death. Uh, in fact, actually, something like 88% of people had at least two, and you pointed out exactly the chronic problems, high blood pressure, diabetes, and or obesity being three factors that we've shown to be sitting in play. So we know people who are at risk, and, yet, and we also know that almost all the deaths have occurred in people over the age of 60. Not all of them, 
some very tragic ones before that, and that the majority are people who are even older than that with multiple chronic disease. So we can start to see the population separating into pieces. And as you pointed out so brilliantly in your book, you know, segmentation is not two populations that share nothing in common. It's separating a large number of people into groups so that you can have a different strategy for each. I received a question today from a pastor of a church who's interested in resuming services. The congregants are asking for it. And by the way, people who are older are feeling very isolated and want to be able to return back to their religion, asking me what he should do. And I made the point around segmentation and transmissibility. First of all, you can't resume your services unless you can maintain at least six foot distance between people. In fact, if you're going to have people sing, probably there's more virus going out into the atmosphere. And so you probably need nine or even 12 feet, which means you better have more than one service. That's how you minimize the transmissibility from getting up too high, as we said in Germany with their schools. So you could have two or three services. Often happens on Easter or in the Jewish religion, on Yom Kippur, more than one service is being created at the same time in order to be able to meet the needs of the population that are there. And for those people at greatest risk, you may want to use your balcony Assuming there's a floor and a balcony. And maybe you only can have four couples up there at any given time. Just like in some restaurants, we're going to have to have fewer people spread far apart. But your strategy for your young participants has to be different than the strategy for those who have some risk but are still relatively protected versus those who are at great risk. And so I could well see having two or three services on a given Sunday in your main area separated by six or nine or even 12 feet are your main congregants. And as I say, up high in the balcony, sit the people at greatest risk, separated apart by not by six or nine or 12 feet, but 20 or 25 feet with everyone wearing a mask and avoiding the kinds of social gathering afterwards that have been a very enjoyable and valuable part, but have the greatest risk bringing people in close contact and infecting them. That's the kind of strategy that I'm thinking about. It's not no services versus regular services. It's how do we minimize transmissibility and fully protect that segment at greatest risk. Yeah, that's really helpful to see that picture play out. So you talked about it in religious services, at restaurants, and there's been obviously a lot of work in terms of the healthcare system. And so how do you see that playing out, that sort of segmentation, protecting against the transmissibility and segmenting by risk? How do you see that playing out in healthcare? In terms of the transmissibility, one of the major learnings we've had during the coronavirus pandemic has been the value of telemedicine. And as you and I have talked about before, you know, when I was a CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we made this a high priority. And actually a decade ago, started offering patients video. And now we're seeing the tremendous advantage it has in terms of the coronavirus. It does obviously eliminate transmissibility. The last place you wanna be if you are at risk, is going to be in an ED where other patients come in with this infection or even in a doctor's office. How do we reform and transform medicine consistent with the principles in your book to be able to understand that telemedicine needs to be a major part? In my talks for the past several years, I've discussed 30% of what we do in the office being done virtually. I actually think now it's closer to 40 or 50%. I think once patients have experienced it, they're not going to go back. Hmm. A second part to it is the use of comprehensive electronic health records. Right now we're being hamstrung as a nation because we don't have the information. As you know, Ziv, we have 
critical care physicians who are recognizing that there's something very different about this virus than other virally induced pneumonias. We have patients coming in who, based upon their oxygen measures, should be unconscious, and they seem to be pretty normal. We have people who are moving very rapidly, far more rapidly than we would expect, from mild symptoms to severe symptoms. This virus is behaving differently. Imagine if we had interoperability in a single record, we could really look at everything about them, particularly to the point you're making about how do we segment the population. You can't do that without having comprehensive information. I hope that one of the lessons we will have learned is the necessity for this and the idea that right now, large manufacturers are prohibiting their application programming interfaces, their APIs to be open to others for business reasons, to prevent people who are today using their systems moving to someone else's, I think that's unethical. And mm. I think we need to force that to happen, and I'm hoping that it's gonna occur. But the last part is chronic disease, mm -hmm. something that you've written about extensively and something that we seem to relatively ignore in the United States. We have an epidemic of chronic disease, and how are we going to be able to address it? One thing, of course, is to have that, the comprehensive information so we know what people have, and at every point of contact, we need to be able to address it. You can't address it unless you have that comprehensive information, and what we know is that half of the people don't see primary care in a given year. They see a specialist. So how do we move in that particular area? The second thing is a paper I published in the Harvard Business Review about leveraging our support staff to assist in this process. Mm -hmm. So the opportunity to have someone working under a physician direction in our offices, not an RN even, just a medical assistant who can ask a set of questions, not make a judgment, they don't have the license for that, but ask a set of questions based upon the physician and now segment for the doctor. Which patients are at risk? They're not under control versus those that are doing extremely well. I mean, think about it. How do we manage chronic disease most often? We see someone and then on a formulaic basis, we say, come back in three months or four months. We don't know what happens in the transition. We could know. And someone without license to make those clinical decisions can still ask the questions that are there. It really though leads to where the, now we'll go back to the chest analogy, the end game is. As you know, there's technology today to monitor a variety of physiologic functions, blood pressure, pulse, oxygen, glucose, weight. You can go down the list that are there. How are they being used? They're being promoted as tools to send information from the patient to the doctor. Our doctors, particularly in primary care, are overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. The last thing they want is 100 EKGs or rhythm strikes coming to their office. Mm -hmm. What we need is, is artificial intelligence embedded mm -hmm. inside that machine that tells the patient mm -hmm. the following answer, not the one you might expect. Not whether you're sick, but whether you're well. Whether you're not, you still have the diabetes, but are your blood sugars in the range that are expected? And why is that so important? Because now you want to reframe how care is provided. I see you once a year just to make sure everything is understood and is moving in the right direction. And then I tell you, I don't need to see you except when your device says that you are not well or fails to tell you that you're well. That could be tomorrow and it might not be for 11 months. And so now we segment the population based upon your day-to-day -day measurements, not by sending them to the doctor so as we might imagine it could be, but doesn't make any logical sense, but based upon what that device is telling you. And a great example of that 
that we were able to do when I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente was for patients who had implantable cardiac defibrillators. And that's the one device whereby regulation, they're required to notify a database if they fired. Across the country, how are they managed by cardiologists? Every three months, come back in and we're going to check you. How did we manage you? Once a year, we would see you. But any time it fired, now we want to see you immediately because there's a problem going on that we have to diagnose. That's the reframing of healthcare from one size fits all down to segmentation and specification. Yeah, and I think it's segmentation by need. Um, so it's not the typical demographics or whatnot. It's it's actual need. It's actual situation. I, Ravi, I couldn't agree more with you, and been thinking about this a lot. And I think the, you know, this notion that you know, whereas before, you know, virtual care, uh, home care, remote monitoring, exception reporting, you know, I think those those types of interventions were nice to haves. I think they're now must haves in this COVID era. And I think that the need is going to outlast that. And, you know, it's going to do the right things. It's going to make healthcare, all the things we talked about before, it's going to make healthcare uh, more convenient, uh, safer, less costly, more preventive. And to your point, it also unloads the primary care providers and other and specialists from the enormity of data that would just flood them otherwise. And and quite honestly, I see that even today and in the past, it's been, you know, primary care doctors and specialists have been doing two jobs. They've been doing their day job and then they have this other job of, you know, in-between care, which is just sort of this hidden workflow. So I think all of this is brought to a head by the uh, exposed and potentially exacerbated by the current pandemic, but I believe this is future-facing. This is what we needed to do anyway, and we're just catapulted into that future, uh, whereas before it might have been a more of a, a slower transition and potentially more painful transition in some ways. So you mentioned Kaiser, and I do want to ask you about this notion of capitated, because I, I do think that's another vulnerability the pandemic has really exposed. You know, the fee-for-service system, particularly in primary care, has collapsed, and we see this uh, with just the number of primary care practices that have closed shop, that have uh, gone bankrupt because their their livelihood, their revenue depended on people coming into the office and the doctors dropping a CPD code. Whereas if you're on a capitated system, you get paid for the patients that you take care of, regardless of whether they show up in the office or not. So I think that is another sort of future-facing situation that already exists today in some areas, in some pockets like Kaiser Permanente. I'm curious as to Number one, you know, what do you think about that? And number two, just in general, what I was saying before about the sort of, whereas before a lot of this was nice to have, now it's, it's a must-have. Let me go back to a comment I made earlier. You know, I think we need to bring a strategic lens to this question, whether we're looking at today's coronavirus problem or to the point you're making, the overall healthcare system when we get to the end of the process. You know, in your wonderful book, you talk about bringing a marketing mindset. And a marketing mindset says, what's the problem we're trying to solve? And by that, I mean, what's the problem the patient needs to have solved? And that's not something we tend to ask ourselves. We ask ourselves, how do we usually do the business? Rather than asking, what's the problem we're trying to solve? In the COVID-19, you know, testing, everyone's talking about testing. What's the problem we're trying to solve? No one's really clear about that. If the problem we're trying to solve is figuring out this r naught of one, now we know why we're testing. If testing is designed to find people before there are symptoms, that's a different reason. They both could be good reasons. But the idea simply of testing is not a strategic solution. It's a tactic, but it needs a strategy that's going to drive it, which gets to the point that you're making, which is that why do we need to redesign and reform and reframe healthcare? It's because the current system doesn't work. And how do we know it doesn't work? We know the United States is the last amongst 11 nations uh, who are industrialized in terms of outcomes 
uh, longevity is last, childhood mortality is last, maternal mortality. You and I know the statistics, we could go through it all of the time. The book that I'm now writing is going to be about the physician culture, and it's due with the publisher this uh, summer. It'll be out in print next spring. And in it, I talk about how the physician culture joins with the systemic issues to create problems, to create failures. So you're talking about how doctors are reimbursed. And when we reimburse physicians on a fee-for-service basis, what we know is we're going to get what we have. Higher utilization that doesn't add much value. 30% of what we do today doesn't accomplish very much. And devaluation of primary care. Because in the current culture, what we see is that intervention is at the top of the hierarchy. Urgent, acute intervention is at the top of the hierarchy. And prevention and management and avoidance of complication is way down. And it's why in the book that I wrote in this treatment, why we think we're getting good healthcare, we're usually wrong. And I talk about the four pillars and they go together. And we're seeing all of the pillars crumbling now in this coronavirus because they're not built on this strong foundation. Integration is so crucial because when physicians can work together, you start to see the advances that are occurring in Kaiser Permanente right now, all physicians are being trained to support the critical care physicians because that's going to be the choke point, the biggest issue facing the hospital. Without integration, you're not able to do that, the, the critical care and the ED, I should say both of those. Capitation becomes key. If we're going to minimize chronic disease, we have to value avoiding people getting sick. As much as we value the individual who unblocks a coronary artery, we have to value the primary care physician who prevents it in the first place. And we don't do that in our society today. Capitation does that. Capitation reinforces, it adds value to people who avoid complications, who avoid preventable medical errors. By moving to capitation, we now can start to advance the system, changing people's perspective and changing their mindset. I mean, the fact that hypertension is the leading factor, and I'll call it correlated because we don't still know whether it's caused, right. correlated with death from or hospitalization and therefore death from the coronavirus. Of course, the United States today, it's controlled 55% of the time. In Kaiser Permanente, we led the nation. It was over 90%. That not only reduced strokes and heart attacks and kidney failure, but probably, we don't have the data yet, is going to have a major impact upon COVID-19. The third piece is technology. And a decade ago, we started doing video visits. So by the time the virus struck, everything was in place. Every physician had been required every year to do enough video visits to feel comfortable with it. It's now happening, believe it or not. This is Northern California data. Four million members in Northern California, 10,000 video visits every single day, and that's still going up. You can't do that unless you've prepared your people, and have that co comprehensive information. And the fourth pillar is leadership. And you've stressed this in your writings so many times. We don't train people adequately, physicians adequately. Mm -hmm. I read a piece for the, for the Journal of Medicine. I suggest in the fourth year of medical school, we send every student to the business school for a month to get trained in it. All of the cracks are visible. We're fragmented. We're paid on a piecemeal basis called FIFA service. The technology we use is the last century. We still fax as the number one way to exchange information, a technology from 1834. And we don't have the leadership we need. I'm hoping this is going to be a wake-up call. You know, when I talk at meetings, mm -hmm. the question I often get is, when will all this happen? When will we move forward? And I've said now for the past five years, 
It won't happen until there's a next recession. And each time I said, and I don't see that happening soon, that next recession is here today. Interesting article in the paper about how the employers refuse to support the desire of hospitals and health plans to have government bailout coming. Because what they can already see is that when this COVID-19 pandemic is over, they will not be able to fund healthcare the way they did before. I think disruption is on the horizon and listeners who are clinicians and practitioners need to be understanding that that day has now come and now is definitely gonna be the time, the opportunity, the famous phrase, never let a crisis go wasted. What you thought would be impossible now becomes not just likely, but inevitable. Yes, Robbie, so well said. And thank you for outlining the pillars that you wrote about in your book, uh, Mistreated. And one thing that I've heard is this idea of settling into a new normal. And I, I think that, you know, for me, to your point, there are lessons to be learned here in this pandemic. There are vulnerabilities, but they're also on the other side of it, opportunities. And using the language, you know, I introduced, I, I think the opportunity here is not to settle into a new normal, but actually to reframe a new normal and one that is better than the one we had before. And in some sense, we've been, you know, with the crisis and the tragedy of this pandemic, we've also been given a gift. And um, what would be tragic in my mind is if we let it slip through our fingers and didn't learn the lessons. I think in some sense we'll be forced to, but how much better it would be if we really were proactive about it and, and really reframed healthcare uh, and in some of the ways you were describing uh, as well. So I'm just curious, I want to give you the last word, your thoughts about that. I love what you're saying about reframing not in quotes, going back to the old normal, which was, by the way, not very good, uh, or even the new normal, but it's creating the future. So the last time I'll talk about this notion of a strategic lens. Strategy is about the future, and it's about positioning yourself to maximize your probability of success. Doesn't always work, but your chances of making it work are greater. And I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business this notion of saying, how do we increase that probability? How do we increase the likelihood that the reframing we're going to do is going to be successful, which requires that we have a mental mindset? We have to look for every opportunity to move from inpatient to outpatient. Mm -hmm. We need to look for every opportunity to move from the physician's office to the patient's home. We have to look for every opportunity to be able to better manage chronic disease than today, to identify the people who are doing it best at a national level, and expect that everyone is gonna match their performance. We have to look at the opportunities to offer patients more choice. We have to look for the opportunities to do fewer things in person and more by telephone, by video, by getting lab testing. So often we're managing, a, particularly a chronic disease, over a laboratory test or a measurement. How do we do that without forcing the patient to come to our office? How do we find a way that we don't incent people for doing things in person that could be done virtually? How do we develop the leadership and the structure and recommend, recognize that this idea of broad autonomy with everyone doing what they want to do is not a recipe for innovation. It's a recipe for underperformance and the vital need to have comprehensive information at every point of contact. When you start putting on those, that, that mental mindset, that strategic thought way, that thought process, when you start thinking about each of those in everything we do, now you start to put in place effective solutions quickly and to the point you made, when you see coronavirus as a threat, but also as an opportunity, and you say, this is the time to do in one year mm -hmm. what otherwise might have taken 
10 years, now you have the opportunity when we look back, despite the tragedy that would have existed, to at least be able to say, out of that has come positive outcomes. As you know, Zeev, many of the advances in healthcare came out of a terrible tragedy called war. Mm-hmm. How we manage people who have acute injuries, how do we save lives from patients who have had significant trauma. You would not want those wars to happen in order to get that learning, but it really would be tragic if having gone through those, you did not use the opportunities to improve. I think that's the mindset we need to have now. It needs to be strategic and not tactical. It needs to be around reforming. It needs to be around improving. It needs to be changing the way that healthcare is delivered. And that's going to start by both doctors and patients looking in the mirror and recognizing the underperformance of the American healthcare system. We don't want to go back to the normal of the past. We want to create the optimistic future going forward. Robbie, I I could listen to you all day. I so agree with you and I so appreciate the, I think the rigor and the intelligence you bring to, to dissecting the situation, understanding it, and really sharing with us sort of the logic that we all need to take. I would love to continue this conversation. I'm looking forward to your upcoming book. I just want to say thank you. I hope that people hear you. I'm obviously going to share this podcast, but I I hope that your voice and your perspective and your recommendations get heard by many more people. And uh, if there's anything I could do to support you, please let me know. I really appreciate the conversation. You and I feel like we're brothers separated uh, at birth. Uh, our thinking is often very much the same. You're but the smarter brother, though. <laughs> no. But for listeners who want more information, I would encourage them to uh, check out my website, robertpearlmd.com. On that, you can find a lot of information, including links to the various podcasts on the coronavirus and a much deeper analysis of the strategic opportunities that exist. And I can't wait to read your next book about the future of American healthcare. Thanks, Robbie. As always, just such a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So folks, that was the interview I recorded just a few days ago with Dr. Robert Pearl. Just tremendous insights, sobering implications, as well as very helpful suggestions and recommendations. Now, these are unprecedented times, and I hope you find valuable information, guidance, and inspiration in listening to these experts and entrepreneurs share how they're adapting to this pandemic in real time and how they're thinking about and planning for the future. And as I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. In these times especially, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is for individuals, families, communities, and our society. My friends and colleagues, please, please, please take care of yourselves and please share this podcast series with your colleagues. This is Zev Newworth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.